Thank you, Amanda. Thank you, uh, worship team. We are really blessed, aren't we, here at Hope to have uh, such talented musicians who have a heart for worship who lead us every week. So uh, thanks again for that. When I hear that song and that phrase, how can it be, I always think of a hymn that we sang in the church that I grew up in. Uh, The chorus of the hymn says, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, wouldst die for me? It's just amazing, isn't it? And part of the reason we gather together every weekend is because it's easy to forget that story, that truth. It's easy to go through a week and have disappointments and have things that happen and mess ups and we fall down and we wonder, is that love still amazing? Is that grace still amazing? And so we gather together to be reminded that it absolutely is. And it's for you. It's for all of us. It's for the whole world. So keep that in mind as we walk through the message today. We're in a message series called The Summer of Acts at all of the campuses of Hope this summer. We're digging into this book in the New Testament that tells the story of the birth and the development and the growth of the early church. Today we get to Acts chapter 6. Here's how it begins. But as the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. It's verses like this, one of the reasons I love the Bible. The Bible doesn't try to gloss over the things that aren't going well. Uh, The Bible is very honest about the hard work of living together in community, uh, even maybe especially in Christian community. Everything's going the way they want it to go, right? The numbers are going up. The charts are going up and to the right. Believers rapidly multiplied. It should be cause for great joy and, and celebration. But there were rumblings of discontent. How's your Father's Day weekend going so far? Pretty good, maybe, hopefully. For some of you, it's going great. But for others, a weekend like Father's Day weekend is a weekend that brings about rumblings of discontent. Supposed to be a time of great joy and celebration and gratitude to fathers and father figures, but for some, it's rumblings of discontent. Uh, last month we had a message series called You Asked For It, and we were trying to explore some of the big questions people in this congregation are asking. The final weekend of that message series, people in this congregation wrote down questions that they had, and we tried to answer as many as we could. One of the questions that got asked in, in all kinds of ways by all kinds of people centered on the question of forgiveness. When we've been hurt, when someone has offended us or betrayed us or let us down and there has been hurt in a relationship, what does forgiveness look like? And so for those of you who find Father's Day weekend causes rumblings of discontent because of some relational reality in your life, this might be a helpful idea for you to think about and and maybe begin to employ in your life. Um, Forgiveness is a process. Forgiveness happens in stages. There are stages to forgiveness. One time, uh, Peter was asking Jesus this question about forgiveness. How does it work? And Peter wondered, how many times do we have to forgive someone who sins against us? Is seven times enough? No, not seven times, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. And, and remember, in the Bible, the n- numbers mean something. So the number seven, for example, it means completeness or for perfection. Jesus is not saying forgive 490 times, but on the 491st time, you no longer have to forgive. He's saying forgive until the process of forgiveness has been completed, has been perfected. So we think about the process to forgiveness Uh, There's a great overlap between the process of forgiveness and the process of grief. 
Now, when we go through times in our lives when we are experiencing grief and loss, there's a, a process that we work through when it comes to this. And a lot of times, we only think about grief and loss when someone we love has died, and some of you are maybe walking through uh, that reality right now. But there's all kinds of losses that we experience in life. Uh, we experience relational loss. Uh, a loss in a relationship, maybe something happens, parents and children, or spouses, or friends, and there's a hurt that happens, and there's a loss that's associated with that. There are other kinds of losses as well. Think about the loss that happens when you're not invited to a party or where you're not included in something. There's a loss associated with that. Maybe it's a loss of self-esteem. It feels like rejection. You wonder, maybe I don't measure up. I don't have what it takes. I think those of you raising teenagers, you ever experience a loss of trust in those relationships? And, and when there's a loss of trust, there's a hurt that happens, there's forgiveness that needs to happen. How does that happen? There's a process involved in that. And the process of forgiveness overlaps with the process of grief because anytime we have to forgive someone, there's a hurt that's happened, there's a loss that has occurred. So it's the same emotions around forgiveness as around grief. Well, what, what are the stages? What's the process of grief? In 1969, there was a woman named Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. She was a medical doctor, and she was looking at the ways um, her patients, the emotions that they went through when they got diagnosed with a terminal illness. Or what about family members, friends of someone who got uh, diagnosed with a terminal illness or someone who had died? What emotions do they go through? And in her book on death and dying, she comes up with the five stages of grief, and we still are applying it today 50 years later. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance are the stages of grief. And sometimes we make the mistake of thinking about them as kind of this linear progression. As soon as I finish the denial stage, then I move into the anger stage. But nothing ever works out that neatly and orderly, right? There's uh, overlap between these stages. We can be in more than one stage at the same time. We can bounce back and forth uh, between stages. And so I want you to think about forgiveness as this process of walking through these stages. Uh, one of the mistakes that pastors can make, I think, sometimes is when, when congregation asks us about forgiveness, we make it sound too easy or too simple. And it's easy to point to Jesus. Look at Jesus on the cross. He calls out from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. As he's being killed, he forgives the people who are killing him. Whatever it is that you're dealing with isn't that bad, just forgive them. And we make it seem like this real simple, real easy thing, and we forget that there's this whole process associated with it. When Jesus says, Father, forgive them, he's in the acceptance stage. So I want to just kind of talk, what's the process that Jesus walks through? It's a grief process, it's a forgiveness process, and it shows up very clearly in the pages of Scripture. The last 24 hours of Jesus' life, for example, he celebrates the Last Supper uh, with his disciples. He institutes communion. And after that meal, remember part of the meal, Judas leaves to go round up the soldiers to come and arrest Jesus. And after the meal, Jesus takes the disciples and he takes Peter, James, and John especially. They go to the Garden of Gethsemane and look what Jesus says to them. My soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. He's walking through this grief process that's going to end up at the cross, which is the forgiveness process for you and for me. It's what makes forgiveness possible. But he's walking through all of these steps. We see from the garden to Calvary, Jesus goes through these steps. He says to Peter, James, and John, you stay here and pray. I'm going to go over here by myself for a while and pray. 
Remember what one of the things Jesus prays is? If it's possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. He is not in the acceptance stage when he's praying this. I'm a little hesitant to say he's in the denial stage because it feels like that's, there's something sinful about being in denial. It's not. It's just human. It's just part of the reality of what we go through when we're going through these things that happen in our life. Jesus is also in the bargaining stage. The bargaining stage of grief is marked by the phrase, if only. So when Jesus shows up after Lazarus has died, Lazarus' sisters Mary and Martha say, Jesus, if only you had been here, our brother would still be alive. And it happens in all sorts of ways. My uh, grandparents were killed in a car accident. And you go through bargaining kinds of statements when if only someone else had been driving. If only they had left 30 minutes earlier or 30 minutes later, then they wouldn't have been in the wrong place at the wrong time. And this happens in all sorts of ways when we're experiencing uh, grief and loss. We do this bargaining thing, if only. Now, Jesus says, if it's possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. He ends that prayer by saying, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. He's working his way to the place of acceptance. After he's been praying for a while, he goes back to his good friends who've been praying for him, right? <laughs> Remember what happens? They've fallen asleep, and now Jesus enters the anger stage. Couldn't you watch with me even one hour? Come on, guys. Now, therapists will tell us that anger is a secondary emotion, and the emotions that kind of are really going on behind anger are the emotions of fear or frustration, uh, hurt, sadness. You think Jesus is scared in the Garden of Gethsemane, waiting for the soldiers to come to take him away to be crucified? Absolutely. In fact, Luke says Jesus is in such anguish of spirit that he sweats drops of blood. He is scared. He is frustrated. Couldn't you even watch with me for one hour? He's sad. He's hurt. He's been betrayed. He's going to be denied. He's walking through these steps. What about depression? As Jesus is making his way from the garden to Calvary, is there any depression? All of the biblical writers say that as, as Jesus gets nailed to the cross, at noon, darkness falls across the entire land. And it's out of that darkness that Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why have you forsaken me? That's a pretty powerful picture of depression, isn't it? Everything is dark and God is nowhere. So we see Jesus working through these steps. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, working his way to acceptance. When he gets to a place where he can say, Father, forgive them, it's not an easy thing. He's, he's walked the process, the process of forgiveness, the process of grief. He gets to a place of acceptance, and he says, Father, forgive them. Nothing easy about forgiveness. It's a long road. It's hard work. It was for Jesus. It will be for you and for me when we're talking about the relational work that we have to do in our lives. And so if you struggle with rumblings of discontent this weekend, maybe a relationship with a dad, maybe a relationship, some other kind of relationship, this is the encouragement to you. Start, start walking through this process and see if you don't end up eventually over time in a place, a new place of forgiveness and hope. The rumblings of discontent in Acts chapter 6 are centered on the food pantry. Uh, it's so fascinating. Um, the Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers, 
saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. That's Acts chapter 6. Now, don't read through this too quickly. Remember what happens in Acts chapter 2? Holy Spirit gets poured out, uh, the festival of Pentecost, and there are people in Jerusalem from every tribe, every country, every nationality, every ethnic group in the world. They're there to celebrate the Passover. And when the Holy Spirit gets poured out, all of those people come together. And like 3,000 of them put their faith in Jesus. And it says, all of the believers were together and had all things in common. Even if they were of different ethnic groups, different languages, they had everything in common, and they all lived happily ever after, right? For about four chapters. And now, all of a sudden, these two very different groups of people who are within the church are complaining. One's being treated unfairly, being discriminated against. Something is not right in the family. Something's not right in the family. One of the primary metaphors of the church by the New Testament writers is this metaphor, the church is the family of God. Something's not right in the family. And you look at this, you... Those of you who are parts of families, if you have brothers or sisters, or if you have children, anything like this ever happen where one person complains that they're being mistreated? And how are the apostles going to respond? Before we talk about how the apostles respond, how would you respond? What I would do is I'd, we have to have an investigation. We have to get to the bottom of this. We have to find out, is this brother just lying, trying to get his brother in trouble? Or are the Greek-speaking believers, is their complaint valid? Are they really being discriminated against, or is it just whiners and complainers? Here's part of what I find interesting. Luke, the author of the book of Acts, Luke doesn't talk about any investigation. He, he doesn't tell us, oh yeah, it's absolutely true, they were being discriminated against. Neither does he say, no, they were getting their fair share. It's almost like Luke and the apostles, that's not the point. The point was something was not right in the family, and so the question is, how do you respond? How do you respond when something's not right in the family? I respond by playing a movie clip. In the Disney Pixar movie, The Incredibles, something's not right in the family. And so Helen Parr and her husband Bob Parr, they are retired superheroes. They're living a quiet, ordinary, suburban life. He's uh, working for an insurance company, and she's loving their new life. And he has, he's got rumblings of discontent. And it all kind of comes to a head one night around the dinner table. Take a look. How do you respond when something's not right in the family? It's time to intervene. Don't just stand there. And that's how the apostles respond. They select seven men who are well-respected and are full of the spirit and wisdom. And they give them this responsibility. They become deacons. They're in charge of the distribution of food in the early church. And so the apostles are like, stop standing on the sideline, and they give them a responsibility to be fully engaged, fully participate in the mission of the family, the family of God. In the time that we have left today, what I want to do is kind of give the same challenge to the men in this room, whether you're single or married, uh, have kids or no kids, the same challenge to the men in this room that Helen gives to her husband. It's time to engage. Don't just stand there. And, and two ways that I want to talk about engaging today. Engage in curiosity, and then secondly, engage in compassion. 
Uh, we'll start with curiosity. What do we mean when we say engage in curiosity? Uh, the last couple of weeks, my family, we were in Florida with Saffron's biological aunt, Kristen, and her husband, Bavik. They got married a year ago over Memorial Day weekend, and now Kristen is expecting a baby. And while we were there, we had the gender reveal thingamajig, and so it's a pink balloon. So now we know, and it's so exciting, they're expecting a little girl. And so um, Bavik you know, it's first marriage for both of them. They're, they're getting ready to be first-time uh, parents. Bavik's 48, so for 47 years he was single. <laughs> now he's going to be a dad. He's only been married for a year. And we show up with our six kids, and I thought, this is, I'll just observe. How is Bavik with, with children? Uh, one of the things I observed, Bavik seemed to care. He seemed to be a little more interested in the safety of my children than I was. And Here's what I mean. So, we were in this condo, and there was kind of a boardwalk out to the beach, and the boardwalk was, I don't know, four to six feet off of the ground in places, and so there was a railing on it that was kind of waist high, another three feet up, so Shaden's preferred way of walking down the boardwalk was to jump up on the rail and kind of tightrope walk down, and Bavik was uncomfortable with this, and after a while, he said to Shaden, I would feel a whole lot better if you just walked on the boardwalk, not on the rail. I'm scared you're going to fall off and get hurt, right? Another time we were at a, a playground, and uh, Saffron's biological sister, Kylie, was there, and Bavik and Kylie were swinging on a swing set, and Kemble, our son Kemble, went over, not to swing with them, but he shimmied up to the top of the swing set, and he's kind of spinning around up there, you know, with his knees and hanging and dangling, and again, Bavik looks at me with a very concerned look. He's like, is this, is this okay? And I said, absolutely, in fact, it's encouraged. Now, there were other ways in which I was a little more scared than Bavik, like there were turtles there, and our kids wanted to touch them. I'm, okay, if you want to lose an arm, go ahead and touch that turtle. But um, kids, do you ever notice this? Kids are less fearful than adults. They're running around, they're jumping, they're exploring, they're climbing, and everything's just this great adventure for kids. And they're asking questions, and they're not afraid of not knowing the answer because they're kids. They're not supposed to know. They're supposed to ask questions. That's how they learn. And so for a child, the world is this place to explore. It's exciting. It's stimulating. It's awesome. They're mostly not shaped out of fear. They're mostly shaped out of their curiosity. And so one of the jobs, I mean, that doesn't last forever, though, does it? You fall off a railing one time and get hurt, or you fall off a swing set one time and you get hurt, and all of a sudden you're not as excited to do that anymore. And you begin to shape your life, instead of shaping it around curiosity, you begin to shape your life around pain avoidance. What are those things and what are those areas, <clears throat> what are those areas in my life where I'm fearful that I might get hurt and I'm going to avoid that? It's fascinating. And it happens in all sorts of ways. And so, one of the, now, our kids are going to get hurt, right? No matter how protective we are, they're going to get hurt. Might get hurt physically, but for sure they're going to get hurt emotionally and relationally. So one of the jobs that we have as parents, and maybe dads in particular, how do you stay engaged with your kids enough that as they grow from childhood through the teenage years and as they enter into adulthood, they maintain more of a sense of curiosity and not so much a sense of fear? that their sense of fear doesn't overpower that sense of curiosity. Now, it turns out curiosity is the antidote to fear, and here's part of what I mean by this. Of course our kids are going to have fears. The idea is not that we, we want to have kids who are fearless, 
But the idea is how do we leverage their natural curiosity when it comes to their fear? So maybe they get hurt in a relationship and they're scared to make a new friend. How do we help them get curious about that? Or if they have fears for the future or fears about trying something new, how do you leverage curiosity to not hide the fear, not pretend like we're we're not afraid, but to bring it into the open? Because when you talk about the fear, when you get curious about the fear, it loses power. So dads, we've got to engage in curiosity. Now if we're going to engage in curiosity and help our kids engage in curiosity, we might have to engage in curiosity about our own fears, right? So dads, dudes, men, what are you scared of? And I was reading as much as I could this week on uh, different people from different sort of fields and what are their perceptions of the big fears that men in our country in particular have? And here's how I kind of sum it up. Men fear not being wealthy enough, tough enough, or smart enough. And there's, again, an underlying fear behind all of those. And that is the fear of being perceived as weak. If I'm wealthy enough and tough enough and smart enough, people are going to think I'm strong. And if I'm not wealthy enough or tough enough or smart enough... The fear is I'm going to be perceived as weak. It's one of the big fears that men in our culture have. Now, I found an interesting paradox as I was looking at the fears that men have. Uh, Brene Brown, because this is our fear on one hand, but Brene Brown, a, a shame researcher, she talks about this message, this overwhelming message that we have in our culture. If you go to the next slide, she says the overwhelming message in our culture today is that an ordinary life is a meaningless life. This is a message not just to men, but to all people, young, old, male, female. An ordinary life is a meaningless life. But let me just talk about men in particular since it's Father's Day. I talk to a lot of men who are kind of dissatisfied in their jobs, in their careers. Um, They're spending 40, 50, 60 hours a week doing their job, and they're not passionate about it. They, They don't particularly like it. They like the paycheck. Uh, they like the status maybe that it provides. They, they like the way it helps provide for the family, but they're not excited about it. They don't find a whole lot of meaning and purpose in it. And so deep inside them, there's this holy restlessness for a more meaningful way of spending those 40 to 60 hours that they're on the clock, that they're at their job. So if on the one hand, we have a fear of not being wealthy enough, tough enough, or smart enough, what happens if I want a more meaningful life? Maybe I have to leave a job and take a job that doesn't pay as much. And now I have this fear I'm not going to be wealthy enough. Or I leave this job, I go back to school and have to get a whole different degree. And I find myself sitting in class as a 45-year-old going, why didn't I just do this the first time when I was 20 and now I'm not feeling smart enough? On the one hand, this fear of being perceived as weak. On the other hand, this fear of not living a meaningful, purposeful life. What's a man to do? Here's what many men choose to do. Disengage. I would much rather live disappointed than feel disappointed. I would much rather just kind of having this ho-hum, ordinary existence than actually take a risk, because what if the risk doesn't turn out? What if the risk actually leads to more disappointment? I'd rather live my disappointed life than take the risk and actually feel more disappointed. But what if we stopped standing on the sidelines of our life and of our families and we engaged and we engaged in curiosity around our fears? What is it that we really fear here? 
that's keeping us stuck, that's holding us back? What does it look like to move forward in faith with God's help? Engage in curiosity. It's the antidote to fear. Secondly, engage in compassion. Engage in compassion. So I, I just think this is kind of the natural tendency for men when, not everyone, but in general, when our kids come to us and they're scared, our instinct is to say, don't be afraid. Or when they come to us and they're hurt, our instinct is to say, don't cry. And we think we're helping. <laughs> we, we think we're solving. We think we're fixing a problem. And the reality is we're creating a whole new set of problems. Because when our kids come to us when they're scared or when they're hurt and we say, don't be afraid, don't cry, what we communicate to our kids is you do not have what it takes to deal with your world, your, your reality. And it fills them with shame. It starts to fill them with shame. If, our, if we engage in curiosity and our kids come to us with um, a, a fear, the curiosity says, let's talk about that fear. Would you be willing to talk with me about that fear? Whatever it might be. When there's a thunderstorm rolling through and the kids come and jump into bed with you because the house is shaking and there's thunder and lightning. And then you just go to Google and you explain to them, no, that doesn't help either. <laughs> But you just say, let's talk about this fear. Let's talk about it. Or when they come and they're hurt, we sing this song about a God who, I'm running to your arms, I'm running to your arms, because I know when I'm hurt, you will just embrace me. God's not going to say, stop crying. Are we the kinds of dads that our kids run to us knowing we'll embrace them and we'll say, I hate when you are hurting. Instead of filling them with shame, it fills them with a deep knowledge that they are loved. And when our kids know, in fact, it's not just true of kids, when any human being knows they are loved, it sets them free to talk about the tough stuff, to talk about fears. We have this really strange sort of belief in our culture that it's a sign of weakness to talk about our fears. It's a sign of weakness to talk about tough stuff. And men in particular, we want to puff out our chest, I'm Mr. Incredible, nothing scares me, bring it on, but that's not honest. The honest truth is it takes tremendous amount of courage. It takes a tremendous amount of courage to be vulnerable. And men don't want to be vulnerable. We want to be tough. And it's really interesting what happens. Um, if you are interested in being a follower of Jesus, if you're interested in being a follower of Jesus, vulnerability is actually a biblical requirement. Remember at the end of the account of the creation of the heavens and the earth and Adam and Eve are placed in the garden at the end of chapter 2, right before sin enters the world, right before the fall of man, it says Adam and Eve are in the garden and they are naked and unashamed. It's not about fashion. It's about a relational reality. They have this vulnerable, open, honest relationship. Naked and unashamed. They can talk about anything. No fear, no shame. That's, we were created for this. We are hardwired by God for the connection that comes through vulnerability, but somewhere along the way, we learn shame. Shame is a real powerful tool in unhealthy families. And shame's a real powerful tool in unhealthy teaching environments. Shame's a real powerful tool in unhealthy churches. Compassion is the antidote to shame. And who's the most compassionate person who ever lived? Jesus. He's also the strongest person who ever lived. Nothing weak about Jesus. He comes to this earth out of love for the whole world. 
And we're told that Jesus' perfect love casts out fear. What would happen if all of us, but maybe men in particular, were to stop just standing there and we were to engage? Engage in curiosity as the antidote to fear. Engage in compassion as the antidote to shame. I'm absolutely convinced if we start to do this, God will and God can do amazing things in our lives, in our families, in our communities, and through our church. Uh, Bob Parr in the movie Incredibles, his, he's waiting for something amazing. His fear is he's living this ordinary, meaningless life. He's working at an insurance company, doing claims, and he's just like, I'm made for more, I'm made for more. He's waiting for something amazing. Take a look. Would you stand with me, please? Let's pray together. Lord, so many of us are waiting for something amazing. And when the truth is the most amazing thing ever has already happened and makes all the difference for our lives today. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, wouldst die for me? Help us to know that we're loved by the creator of the universe. And that means our lives are anything but ordinary. Help us know your incredible love, your amazing grace. Help us turn our minds to Calvary and to remember the process that you went through out of love for us. Help your compassion be the antidote to our shame. In Jesus' name, amen.